Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35, <clears throat> or you can just look in the bulletin that's provided for you, and the whole text that we'll be studying is there. And as you're turning, I want to ask you this question. If someone were to give you a trillion dollars and say, these are the rules, I give you this, I love you, I give you this, but you have to do this with it. You have, to, you have to do the most good for the most people with it. You have to do it in the name of Christ, giving him the glory, and do it with joy. Now, what if I were to tell you that God has given you something infinitely more valuable than a trillion dollars. It comes with the same conditions. Give it away. Doing the most good for the most people. Do it in the name of Christ. And do it with joy. I want you to see it's, it's in this passage. Even from the Old Testament, we encounter the gospel as it is applied to our stewardship of vocation. This is Stewardship Month. We're focusing on responding to the Lord's grace with everything that we have. We're usually used to just talking about money, but here is the stewardship of vocation, every gift and talent we have. Beginning in verse 10, <clears throat> Exodus 35. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And then in verses 11 through 19, we read about the, the furniture and the utensils that we've already studied. Go down to verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all of who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair, and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft." 
And he's inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, the tribe of Dan. He's filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all the Lord has commanded. Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, every one whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task of the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Brothers and sisters, grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I share a Good, I shared a good friend with Tim Russell. His name is Steve Garber. Steve is a, a man who has taught in college, the college classroom, seminary classroom. He, he's led think tanks and he's, uh, he writes books. He's, he's developed a, a particular skill of insight into the stewardship of vocation, of gifts. And he's become recognized, an outspoken Christian, but he's become recognized among Christians and non-Christians to the point that he is retained by a wide variety of associations and businesses to consult with them about how they might do what is good to the most number of people. The band U2 has hired him as a consultant. The Mars Candy Company has hired him as a consultant, not to mention universities and, and seminaries and other businesses. One of the most interesting requests he ever received, he says, in one of his more recent books called The Vision of Vocation, one of the most interesting requests he ever received was from a group of students who had been exiled from China because of their of their stand, their protest in Tiananmen Square. Even if you weren't alive then, you probably know these iconic images of, of students who, <clears throat> who, though they had no particular social capital, they, they knew they needed to do something in response to the oppressive, uh, atheistic, communist regime that they were enduring. So they, they stood in the, in the square, and they, at risk of being gunned down or run over by tanks, they tried to stand for the freedom of their citizens. Well, they were exiled for their safety and found <coughs> refuge uh, temporarily in, in the United States and 
they were exploring while they were here, they were exploring in Washington, D.C., how they could, how they, if they should do anything more. So they, they were interviewing various people. They called Steve Garber and they, they said, we have these questions. We have two questions. We've been asking it of various people of different worldviews. And the first question is this, is there a good reason to be responsible for history? Now, if, you're, if you have an atheistic worldview, there's no reason to be, to be responsible for history. If you have a, a, a worldview that is based on Marxism, then it's, it's, it's that, the, that oppression has to be replaced with another kind of oppression. And so they said, is there a good reason to be responsible for history? And then secondly, do you have a philosophical system that can sustain that reason? We have yet to find a worldview that could do those two things. Steve said, I have good news for you. It's the good news of the gospel. He explained how you can be personally reconciled with Christ, but also how when Christ draws you to himself, he calls you into his work with him, which is to bring the kingdom of God in heaven to earth. He, he partners with us. He includes us in the dignity of realizing his kingdom on earth as, as imperfect and as unfaithful as we will be. God includes us in this work of sharing the good news of personal salvation, but also of the kingdom of God, which brings good news to every part of life. Those uh, students went back. They got skills. They became academics. They became scientists. They became tradesmen. They, some became pastors. One came to be one of my students in seminary. And then they returned to their homeland where they are still. And they are still bringing the news of that kingdom and exhibiting the good news of that kingdom in their various professions. And that is our privilege as well. We have the privilege, we have the calling as those who believe in Jesus Christ to participate with God in the bringing of the kingdom to earth through our ordinary but intentional lives. Ordinary but intentional lives. Now just two points from this passage in front of us. And uh, they're not original to me. They were, they were points used by a friend of mine who's gone on to be with the Lord prematurely, but he's gone on to be with the Lord who started a center for vocational calling. And he, he always made a distinction between your big C calling and your little C calling. And the big C calling is the calling that God issues to every person, every human being made in his image. Those who are created by him and stamped by him with his image are supposed to answer this big C calling, which is to worship and to work and to give. Now, you might recognize uh, these verses if you're a student of Scripture and you've read uh, in Exodus as we've been going along, even if we didn't study the passage, you'd say, now, wait a minute, I think I've read these very words back in chapters uh, 22 and following. I, I think I've read these very words before, and you have. Because from, from, from chapter 21 to up to 33, 32 or 33, God was 
giving the descriptions of what the, the tabernacle and the temple was, was, was supposed to be. He was, he was telling uh, Bezalel and, and Oholiab back then what they were supposed to make and so forth. All of those same words were there. So why does he repeat himself? What happens in between that, those original instructions and now what we get? The golden calf occurred in between. And God effectively, or God threatened to break the covenant there. He, he threatened to take away the tabernacle, any, any representation of his, his presence on earth and any news of his reconciliation with people. He threatened to break that covenant. Moses, like Christ, intercede, interceded and said, you must not do that. And God forgave and God reconciled and God provided the the, 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 the sacrificial code and, and laws to show how we could be reconciled, how our sins could be forgiven. And so now he comes effectively and he says, okay, you've repented. Let's start over. Let's build the tabernacle. And similarly, he says, every, though he says to every human being made in the image of God, this is your call, we also recognize that uh, we are at war with him and we are we have, we have sinned, and, and uh, there is a, a, a break in our fellowship, but those who have been redeemed and have been reconciled in Jesus Christ, God says to you, he says, okay, I'm going to start putting you back together the way you were supposed to be, and I have a calling for you. And it's these three things you are to worship. That's what we find in verses 1 through 3. We've already studied this in the past, this this. Uh, law of the Sabbath. He says, I want, you to, I want you to worship me. Now, worship, worship is a selfless act, and it's fundamental to who we are as, as human beings. And, it's, and worship is work if done correctly. That's why we refer to liturgy. Liturgy literally means the work of the people. And you, you know that as Second Pres members because we make you work when you come to corporate worship. Stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. One of my friends uh, who visited recently comes from another tradition. He said, now I know why you Presbyterians are so skinny. You never sit still. We come to worship and we're working, we're moving our bodies in response to his grace. And, we're, and we feel most ourselves when we're entering into worship with the right attitude. Because God says, let everything that has breath worship. Psalm 66, 4, that, that all creation worship. We're doing what we're made to do. And it's a selfless act. We come into worship. When we come properly into worship, we come not thinking of ourselves, but of the Lord who deserves all glory. And the Bible also says that we are coming to think of others, considering others more important than ourselves. Philippians 2 says in, in 1 Corinthians 14, we must think of outsiders. We must think of unbelievers. We must think of others when we worship. And if in our worship a selfish thought invades... That, that takes our minds away from the Lord or takes our minds away from our brothers and sisters whom we are supposed to be serving with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. If we say, I, I just, I hate that hymn. I don't know why anybody would like that kind of thing or that kind of expression or those words. And knowing that brothers and sisters do, other brothers and sisters do like it, then we've ceased to worship. John Adamson, who is a, 
a legendary elder here who has lots of institutional memory, I say, so that I don't call him old in public. But John Adamson shared with me recently a, a document that has been used to guide our, our church planting efforts, most recently the Avenue. And it, uh, it spells out a number of things that we as, a, as uh, those who are participating, coordinating in church planting agreed to. And there's one paragraph that stuck out to me this week as I was looking over this document. It has to do with worship. It says, worship must be contextually relevant. We need to avoid esoteric theological jargon in everything we do. We have to use words people understand, like esoteric theological jargon. <clears throat> no, but anyway, we worship in a way that is alien to what lost people expect. Therefore, worship must be explained constantly. Either we can use our worship and our words to keep people away, or if we want to reach the lost, we will think through our worship through the eyes of the non-believer. Also knowing a sense of the place, educational level, and thought patterns of the community in which we worship will factor into how we shape the service. This is charity. The model of the incarnation is that God stoops to meet us. We do the same when we are thinking about our worship. We're saying that about the churches we planted and about ourselves. It's a, it's a tremendous privilege to think about how to be warm and welcoming in our worship is our fundamental calling. And then the secondly, we are called in our big C calling to work. Work didn't come into the creation after the fall. Struggle and resistance in work did. Before the fall, God planted a garden, the Bible says in Genesis 2, and then he, he put man and woman into it to care for it, to nurture it. To, to garner from it its, its potential. And then after the fall, he reiterated that command, take uh, dominion of the earth and subdue it, be fruitful and multiply. All of those same original cultural mandates are repeated after the fall. The Bible says, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 17, he's given each of us an assignment. Sometimes people misuse that text to to try to keep people down, keep them in their place. That's not what Paul meant. Paul said, he, God has given you an assignment right now. You might not like it. It might, it might be unpleasant, but it's your assignment for now. And work at it with all your might and do it heartily unto the Lord, he repeats in Colossians 3.23, knowing that your reward comes from the Lord, not from man. He tells us too, and this should take off a lot of pressure from those of you who are trying to figure out exactly what your profession is supposed to be or what your major in college is supposed to be. The Bible, God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to work. Work at something with your hands so that you will have something to give to everyone who has need. That's all God calls you to do right now is to work heartily unto the Lord so that you might have something to give. And he promises that even if, you, if, you're, if it's not a pleasant experience, if, it, if it's unsatisfying, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, God is able to take those most ordinary, most mundane, most unrewarding things that you feel like you're doing right now, if they're done unto the Lord and for his glory, he is able to establish them as eternally significant. We are to work. That's foundational to this text too. Every person who had 
the ability to do something with their full heart did something. And thirdly, um, we are called to give. You notice all of these precious metals and precious stones. Where do they get this stuff? They're supposed to be slaves coming out of Egypt. Well, remember, when they came out of Egypt, God moved in the hearts of the Egyptians to shower them with jewelry and, and expensive tableware and so forth and clothes, not only to provide for them in their journey, but so that at this moment they would have opportunity to give back to the Lord. And specifically, to create something beautiful in the desert. This is the way God is. God is a God who even after, even after the sin with the golden calf, which they also made with that gold, says in his redemptive grace, all is not lost. I want you, I want you now to do something truly beautiful in response to my grace. He gives us the same privilege as those who bear his image, who know Christ and know the beauty of his grace in our lives. We have the opportunity to, to bring beauty to every place that we come. Look at these flowers that are brought in here every week and crafted by our, our own volunteers to bring what functional purpose? To, it doesn't have to be a functional purpose. It brings beauty. The, the music that we enjoy, the variety of music over the Lord's day, it brings beauty. And you, as an image bearer of God, have the privilege of bringing order or beauty or purpose even to the most mundane task for the glory of God. God honored Bezalel and Aholiab and these, and these leaders and women and all men and women who came and brought whatever they could and they gave it in response to grace that they might further the mission of bringing God's presence to bear on earth but in though doing also they were revealing their, 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 fundamentally that they were bearing the image of God because God is a giver it's, it's an essential part of God that he is a giver God, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God gave. God so loved, he gave. And when he gave, he gave, he created everything in the world to give. The sun gives light. The moon gives light. The, the, the soil provides food. The, the, uh, the, the rain brings nurture and nourishment to the earth and sustains us. Everything gives. The only thing that takes after the fall and doesn't return is death. And so we give testimony. When we give, when we give generously of anything that we have, we are fulfilling our image-bearing nature. To live stingily in any way is to participate more in death than in life. That's our big C calling. What, this, what is the little C calling? The little C calling is what God has individually called you to. You as an individual son, daughter of God. You, you see that in our text in, in chapter uh, 35, verse 30, when, when God says, see 
The Lord has called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. Look, look at this, this, this beautiful attention of God to this one person. He sees him. He calls other people to see him. It's one of God's names. Bealahai Roy, Hagar called God when he saw her in her distress. This is the God who sees. He sees you. He takes notice of you. And he calls you by name. This is reflected in the New Testament too. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 17. Speaking to the believers at Pergamum. He says to those who overcome. Jesus has written your name on a stone. And that name is known only to you. And to him. What a beautiful concept that. That when we say the Lord is my shepherd, we can say he is. He has individually, personally seen you and called you by name. And in response to that, then we should give our heart. Notice how often it's repeated in this, in this text. Verse 5, 21, 22, 26, 29, 36, 2. As many as, as their hearts were stirred, their hearts were full... By what? By the recognition of God's individual and redeeming and undeserved and prodigal grace. They responded by saying, here are the precious metals that I've had. Here's my money. Here's my, here are my gifts. Here are my skills. I give them to you from my heart. God could have demanded that. You didn't earn those things, so I'm taking them back. He could have required it, but he didn't. They gave these free will offerings as acts of love in response to the love of God. And then notice our individual, our little sea calling becomes more and more refined as we gain skills. Verses 35, or chapter 35, verses 30 to 35 describe the distinctive skills given to Bezalel and Aholiab and the other craftsmen. And, and notice that, that, that they, were, they were filled with the Spirit and they were given intelligence and craftsmanship. They were filled with the Spirit. This is, this is descriptive of a prophet. That's descriptive of a priest. A man recently told me a, a skilled craftsman, a, 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 a cabinet maker recently told me that and, he, and he's, a, he's a recovering addict. And he said, as he met Christ, not only did Christ deliver him from his addiction, but he said, I found Exodus chapter 35 and I discovered that my skill, my craft is as much a gift of the Spirit of God as yours as a gospel minister is. He gets it right. But, but here I've got to speak to these, these misconceptions that we all, all uh, frequently have about skills, especially if you are young or student. We have this misconception that just if you have a gift, you have an ability, an intellectual ability or a physical ability, athletic ability or or a, a craft or, or, or an interest, you, you tend to think that if, if I have it, everybody has it. 
If I have this ability, it must not be special. Another common lie is that God's calling is hidden behind one of 15,000 doors, and it's up to you to find exactly the right one. And if you don't open the right one and go in the right door, then you're going to be like, it's going to be like the game of life. You're going to go down a ruinous road and never recover. There's another lie that uh, you have to be specialized from the beginning. That at four years old, you better be giving away uh, the acuity to be a surgeon or a woodworker or something. To be specialized from the beginning. And then the fourth lie is that, that uh, we think that whatever we're in now, whatever we're, we're doing now, that it's static, it's unchanging. We're locked into it forever. You know what the good news of the gospel is of God's providence and of his gifting from even a verse, even an Old Testament passage like this is that you are a unique you. You can always find somebody who's better at something than you are. But there is no person on this planet who is as uniquely gifted with all the complex of gifts and, and experiences and, and background that you have. God has individually and uniquely shaped you for his mission for you in this world. The second truth to answer the lie is that you don't have to find a secret door. God's will for you, his little sea calling for you is revealed gradually as you just do the next thing. Put one step in front of the other. Take the next step. Open the next door. And it may be a failure. It may be a setback. It may involve suffering. But it doesn't mean that you've made a mistake. Or even if you have made a mistake, that God is unable to do anything with you from now on. It's God who causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You just take the next step. And God will open and shut doors and guide you through experiences to improve the skills that you need to answer his next call in your life. The third truth to the third lie is that you don't have to be specialized from the beginning and you really need to never to be specialized in everything. By his providence, through mentors, through life changes, through your schooling. God uses all of these things to, to surface your gifts or your skills or your interest through your failures, through gaining of skills that you can't figure out how they could ever fit into what you are doing in the future, want to do in the future. God guides it all. And finally, every moment of every day brings fresh orders from the Lord Jesus, from King Jesus. And you are never finished with taking those orders and never finished with answering that little sea calling until you die. Every moment of every day, you are to ask him, what do you want me to do now? The final thing involved in little sea calling is mentoring. 
chapter 35, verse 34. Just as we come to worship asking, how may I serve my brothers and sisters? How may I serve God? We come to him with our, the skills and talents and experiences he's, he's given us, just like Bezalel was told to teach Aholiab. I've given you spirit, I've filled you with the spirit. I've given you craftsmanship. I've given you the experience over time to develop these particular skills. Now I want you to give them away. I want you to look around and find somebody in whom you can invest and impart, not just a Sunday school lesson, not just, not just biblical discipleship, which should, we should be doing too, but what do I have? Maybe I don't even do it vocationally. Maybe my passions lie outside of my vocation. But what do I have that I can give away for others? Do you know that I'm very involved in the city, and as many of you are, and I, I ask every leader I meet, every political leader, every social leader, every, every clergy leader, nonprofit, I ask this question. If, if, if I'm to relate to my, my, my congregation what they can individually do as the most strategic thing that will repair this city, that will restore people's brokenness, that will, that will break them out of cyclical poverty or will help them educationally or, or help them vocationally or, or address our unemployment, our poverty problem. If I, were to, if I were to tell them one thing, what is the one most strategic thing you would tell them to do? Every one of them gives the same answer. Mentor. Whatever they have, my friends tell me, is more than what most have. And it's not just a business skill or an academic skill or, a, or money. It's even the most basic of life skills. Among the opportunity youth, the, the 40,000 of them between 18 and 24, there is such a gap in education and, and in and in. A family stability, an investment of older people in them. That the simplest of life skills beca can become revolutionary. One of our elders recently helped one of his neighbors who didn't understand why you take the trash from the back of the house to the street to be picked up. No one had ever taught him. And he didn't understand why it smelled so bad. He didn't understand why it piled up and nobody did anything about it. He didn't understand what, where to take it. Didn't, didn't understand why, it was, why he had such a rodent problem. And so that elder mentored his neighbor. When you take the trash to the curb, they'll come and pick it up. It takes it away in a timely way and then the rodents will go away. There is some skill that you have, some knowledge that has been given to you that can be used to bring life and shalom to somebody else in the name of Christ. What dignity God has given to us. What joy he has given to us to be able to participate in bringing his kingdom to earth in the most ordinary of ways lived intentionally. Billy Graham used to tell a story about a, 
a man who had lost his job in the depression and he was walking down the street one day and he saw somebody working on a little piece of stone. He was in front of a cathedral and he was working on a little triangular piece of stone and the man who was so depressed after losing his job looked at him for a long time and finally asked him, what are you doing? And he, he said, I'm, I'm crafting this piece of stone down here to fit in up there. He looked up at the apex of that cathedral. There was a spot missing, and he was shaping this stone to fit up there. Graham used that to, to illustrate suffering. I'm going to use it to illustrate your vocational call, that you are literally, perhaps some of you, shaping stone or lives or, or your, your, your vocation down here. To fit into God's plan up there. You may never know what it is until his kingdom fully comes. But you may know in the meantime, when offered to him as a loving gift in response to his grace, it pleases your heavenly father. At the end of Steve Garber's book on vocation, he, he prays a prayer for all vocations, I want us to close with this prayer. God of heaven and earth, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to see our vocations and occupations as woven into your work in the world this week. For mothers at home who care for children, for those whose labor forms our common life in this city, the nation, and the world. For those who serve the marketplace of ideas and commerce. For those whose creative gifts nourish us all. For those whose callings take them into the academy. For those who long for employment that satisfies their souls and serves you. For each one we pray, asking for your great mercy. Give us eyes to see that our work is holy to you, O Lord, even as our worship this day is holy to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen.